Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Stefania Maurizzi to speak about Julian Assange and her recent book on WikiLeaks called Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. If you're in a position to donate, please do go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. If you're not getting some of our notifications on YouTube, please do sign up for the newsletter on the website. That way you won't miss any future content. Back in a bit. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is currently languishing in Belmarsh Prison, a high-security prison in London, in conditions which the former UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, as deplored and documented in his book, The Trial of Julian Assange. Following the release of the Iraq and Afghan war logs, the Obama administration decided not to take legal action against WikiLeaks for fear of the chilling legal precedent it would set for press freedoms. Yet the Biden administration has stuck to the Trump administration's move to prosecute Assange under the Espionage Act for releasing documents exposing brutal war crimes committed in Afghanistan and Iraq as well as documentation which revealed the true death tolls in these wars. The United States has charged Assange with 18 different counts, including conspiracy to commit computer intrusion under the U.S. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. This is the first time that the U.S. is using the Espionage Act to charge an individual for publishing secret documents. Assange argues that he is being charged with committing political offenses. An existing U.S.-U.K. treaty bans extradition of individuals for such political crimes. Nevertheless, the British courts and government continue to uphold the U.S. extradition order, despite medical testimony illustrating his grave psychological state. Extradition to a U.S. prison would exacerbate Julian Assange's condition and would be in violation of international norms preventing torture and inhumane treatment. Given evidence of how access to justice has been eroded in the U.S., U.S. government assurances that he would receive a fair trial are laughable. I'm very excited to be joined by Stefania Morizzi. She's an investigative journalist who works for the Italian publication Il Fatto Quotidiano and is the author of a recent book on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks called Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. Thank you so much for joining me, Stefania. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. So much of your work as an investigative journalist has shown how governments trample on their own laws, which are meant to protect freedom of the press and the public interest. What would you say is the state of freedom of the press in the West? Well, I think uh, our freedom of the press is shrinking, and uh, not just because of the usual constraint, the libel cases and so on, but also because we have... Um, uh, looking at situation in which we have important cases, and I would say the Julian Assange WikiLeaks case is the most prominent among these cases, which uh, make us, uh, which make us, which make me very worried. I would say terrified. Make me realize we are at the crossroad. That's why I have invested so much in, on this case to. Uh, go deep to unearth crucial facts, because I think that if uh, the United States, if the United Kingdom and all uh, countries involved in this case can win this case, uh, the consequences will be gigantic for, uh, for freedom of the press. 
And very recently, actually, um, five different journalistic outfits, including The Guardian, uh, El País, Der Spiegel, New York Times, they wrote um, a petition which they signed, which stated that if Julian Assange were to be extradited to the U.S., that it would set a terrible precedent for press freedoms, and that it would also implicate them that they would be found guilty of the work that they do in the service of the public interest. And so do you think this particular letter or petition was signed too late? I think so, unfortunately. I mean, it's positive that at the end of the day, at the 11th hour, they decided to go out with this letter. It certainly had an, a positive impact on the case. Finally, uh, newspapers around the world uh, realized that the, the biggest uh, news outlets have finally uh, are finally asking, are finally calling on the Biden administration to drop the case. But they did so after 12 years. <laughs> have they done it before? Julian Assange wouldn't be destroyed. We wouldn't be in this situation. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't. So now the states involved in this persecution, because I have no doubt whatsoever that this is a persecution. This is a, a bit of terrible persecution. Uh, they realize how little uh, solidarity with between journalists. So they can play these cards of lack of solidarity. They can play this uh, divide and conquer uh, strategy uh, to go after other journalists. So it's very, it has been really, really unfortunately, I would say a disgrace that basically they waited for 12 years before um, going out with this uh, letter and before realizing, before taking seriously Julian Assange, because he had been telling this, he had been tell, uh, trying to get attention on, the, on his persecution since 2010. And everyone was uh, blaming him, was treating him as um, you know, a narcissist, a paranoid. He was absolutely right from the very beginning. The United States has been uh, uh, was determined uh, from the very beginning to go after him and is uh, not just him, even the WikiLeaks journalism and the organization for unleashing this revolution. So he had, had he been taken seriously uh, from the very beginning, we wouldn't be in this situation. And of course, now his health is seriously compromised. And probably all this time, all this um, lengthy legal procedure which has been going on uh, for over a decade, and finally he was charged in 2019, the Obama administration uh, finally had decided not to charge him, the Trump administration charged him, and now he's waiting uh, since 2019 in this uh, very toughest in the toughest prison of Britain and his health is going down going down is collapsing so even if he will come out alive uh, his health he's uh, seriously undermined right and he has said that he would rather commit suicide than be extradited to the United States where he would be placed in solitary confinement and probably tortured in some way or another 
And what is the current um, state of things with regards to his appeal? Because I believe in in the summer, the former uh, British Home Secretary Preeti Patel had approved of the extradition, the British extradition to the U.S. And then that was again appealed by Julian Assange's lawyers. Is there any update on that? No update, unfortunately. We have been waiting for months. We were supposed to to hear in November, then December, then January. We are almost at the end of February, still we don't know. That's why I'm telling you that all this lengthy legal process has been used to break him down. For, so that even if he comes out of, the, of this prison uh, alive, even if he comes out free, uh, he's uh, basically is um, uh, broken. That's why th- this game has been played from the very beginning. Even even with the Swedish case, unfortunately, because they they have kept him arbitrarily detained, both Sweden and the United Kingdom, uh, since 2010 for almost a decade. So, and this is not my opinion. I mean, my opinions. Uh, don't matter. My opinions are not really relevant. This is what the UN body in charge of establishing who is arbitrarily detained established. So it's not my judgment. Right. And a lot of the work you've been done recently involves litigating a freedom of information request, um, which would actually highlight some of the circumstances in which uh, Julian Assange was kept in the Ecuadorian embassy. So I think, um, you know, this must have been around 2013 or 2014 when the Crown Prosecution Service was headed by Keir Starmer. There was so much at the time that they were trying to do to prevent um, the Swedish authorities from uh, asking him questions in the UK. And they wanted to ensure that he would be sent to Sweden where he could then be potentially sent back uh, or sent to the U.S. So maybe you could speak about the role, the really shady role the U.K. government has played in this whole saga and how they've basically done the bidding of the U.S. the entire time. Yes, basically in 2015, after five years, he has remained arbitrarily detained. Uh, I decided to, uh, to, I decided I needed to access the full documentation on the case because uh, no other journalists have tried to get access to this documentation. And of course, you know, we journalists are supposed to acquire documentation in order to reconstruct a case factually. This man has been in the Ecuadorian embassy for years without an hour outdoors, without being allowed to go to the hospital when he needed to go to the hospital. And this was a, an incredible treatment for a journalist who has revealed war crimes. So I I told myself I have to do it because uh, no one did it. And this is uh, unbelievable. Without facts, you, can, you just have opinion. You just have uh, guesses, maybe educated guesses, but <laughs> you don't have facts. So you have to access the d- documentation. So my strategy was I have to start with Sweden because at that time there was no uh, basically, there was no U.S. indictment openly, <laughs> openly known. I mean, uh, we knew, of course, that the U.S. authorities were uh, after Julian Assange or WikiLeaks for publishing the U.S. classified documents. We knew that the Obama administration had 
open an investigation, criminal investigation on Julian Assange or WikiLeaks for publishing those documentation. But there was no public indictment for publishing those documents. So the only uh, the, the only uh, arrest, the arrest order was from Sweden, the European arrest uh, warrant, and no one understood why Sweden was basically not willing to go to London to question Julian Assange and to decide whether to charge him for rape or, or whether to drop the case and uh, to just close the investigation. No one understood why he was trapped in this embassy. We know no end in sight uh, because the Swedish prosecutors didn't want to go there to question him. So my guess was, uh, my strategy was, if I can access the documentation from Sweden, which is an opening, this, which is uh, quite transparent when it comes to government uh, uh, government uh, documentation maybe i can get documents from the uk from the us from australia from all jurisdictions involved in this case and i was right i got the few documents from sweden but those documents were absolutely crucial because for the first time they allowed to to discover why the Swedish prosecutors didn't want to go to London to question him. And by doing so, they are basically created this quagmire in which he was under perennial investigation uh, with this label of rapist, but <laughs> there were not even charges. There was absolutely no charge, nothing. So and the reason was that the Crown Prosecution Service at the time headed by Sir Keir Starmer, which uh, basically in these days, Keir Starmer is the current leader of the British Labour Party, a centrist, uh, contrary to the to Jeremy Corbyn, who is on the left, a pacifist and so on. Um, basically, the Crown Prosecution Service had thought, had advised the Swedish prosecutors don't to tra don't travel to London. Question him only after extraditing him, and by doing so, they created this uh, legal and legal paralysis, which kept Julian Assange arbitrary detained for years. And when he basically went to refuge in the embassy, the legal paralysis became even a diplomatic paralysis, because of course, uh, many countries were involved in this case. So the, the, the role of the Crown Prosecution Service was definitely crucial. And I have no evidence that Keir Starmer personally was involved in taking this decision. I really, I have done all I could to try to acquire the documentation. But I discovered that it destroyed it, which is an incredible thing because, uh, you know, even countries like Italy, we have all sorts of judicial scandals, legal scandals. But even countries like Italy never had the scandal in which a public authority destroyed documentation on a, on a controversial, highly controversial, high-profile legal case as the case is ongoing. And since then, when I discovered this in 2017, since then, I have been fighting in the UK tribunals, uh, upper tribunals, all sorts of tribunals 
in London to try to get information on why they destroyed this documentation, on whose instruction, what the document contained, and not just this, I also discovered that the Swedish authorities destroyed key documents, a large part of these documents. So we have both sides who destroyed this documentation, which is highly anomalous. So I'm trying to dig. And you know, Talia, uh, you might think, okay, now the Swedish is, is gone, it's closed. And it was closed after nine years. It was managed, it was handled in a nonsense way because they kept him under investigation, preliminary investigation for nine years. And he um, uh, was, when they, they, they basically, there was no justice for no one. There was uh, millions of public money um, spent. The, there was no justice for no one. He said that Julian Assange was destroyed. So the way the Swedish prosecutors handle the Swedish case makes no sense at all. And, um, you know, you can say, well, now it's closed. Now the Swedish investigation is gone. Why you are still investigating these uh, matters? I'm investigating these matters because the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, which basically told the Swedish prosecutors don't travel to London to question him, uh, question him only after extraditing him, is the very same public authority which today acts in the U.S. extradition. So in the current extradition case, the United States is acting through the Crown Prosecution Service precisely like the Swedish prosecutors were acting through the Crown Prosecution Service because, you know, um, a foreign state cannot act directly in the British courts, is in London. So they have to deal with the Crown Prosecution Service. So this public authority, the Crown Prosecution Service, is still a crucial authority when it comes to the Julian Assange case. Right. That's super fascinating because I think in your book, you were also detailing how, uh, when you were requesting information on why they had deleted these um, communications or what was even in the communications, they they responded or the the UK authorities responded saying they didn't know what the content of the emails were, <laughs> which is just another level of it's unbelievable. They don't know the content. They they have no way to know whether um, they claim they don't know what the content was, and they have refused to provide precise information. That's why and. Uh, other authorities, British authorities, refuse to investigate. So it is really something highly anomalous. Uh, we have the destruction of documents. We have the reluctance, the refusal to reply, uh, to, uh, to answer a journalist asking for explanation and from information. You have British authorities refusing to uh, investigate it, and you have the Swedish authorities which are doing this very same thing. So clearly, there is something deeply wrong here. Otherwise, they would, you know, they would address my question. They would address my request. You know, 
Your book documents the work of WikiLeaks over the years and also addresses the political significance of the Iraq war logs and the Afghan war logs. The Iraq war logs were comprised of over 300,000 documents and the Afghan war logs, I think, uh, slightly less, 76,000 documents. And at the time when they were released in 2010, um, they basically shook the political landscape, the collateral murder video showed two U.S. soldiers in an Apache helicopter in Baghdad gunning down a Reuters journalist along with his cameramen, as well as innocent civilians who were just trying to help them. Um, so would you say that the release of these uh, documents, as well as the release of Cablegate, which is over 250,000 um, diplomatic correspondences, whether these documents created this aha moment, which showed just how terrible these wars were and what the real death count was. Yes, absolutely. This documentation for the first time allowed to uh, reveal the, 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 the true face of, of the wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and without any, you know, and we could access to secret information and never before, uh, you know, with accepting uh, the Vietnam War and the the Pentagon Papers in 1971 with basically Daniel Ellsberg revealing inf top secret information about the war as the war was ongoing. Uh, so it was amazing. It was really, you know, it was really unbelievable for us, for our journalists who could uh, not just access to this uh, secret information, but we could compare what the propaganda machine was telling the public, was telling the media, was telling the journalists, and what, what really happened on the on the theater world. So it was amazing to be able to compare this uh, and see how the propaganda machine and to obtain evidence of, of you know, killing of innocent civilian and to obtain evidence of torture and to obtain evidence of pressure to to grant impunity for uh, horrific human rights violations like the extra the CIA extraordinary rendition. I remember when I got access to the documentation on the extraordinary rendition of Abu Omar. This is a very important case in Italy, where the CIA kidnapped um, an Egyptian cleric in Milan in the middle of the day, as if, as if it was in, uh, uh, you know, in uh, Chile, Pinochet. To, uh, and they um, basically our prosecutors were amazing. They were able to uh, identify these CIA agents, which had Co they had cooperated with the Italian intelligence, military intelligence. So they were able to identify all of them involved in this uh, extraordinary rendition, which means basically a kidnapping. These people were kidnapped and were brought to countries where torture was the norm, like Egypt, and they were brutally tortured. So uh, our prosecutors were amazing. They were able to identify them. They were able to uh, charge them and to bring them on trial. And the judges basically obtained final sentences for all of them. However, none of them 
went to prison. None of them was extradited from the US because in the meantime, they had left Italy, of course. None of them was extradited and none of them spent, <laughs> you know, uh, any time in prison. So we could imagine, of course, pressure on Italian authorities. Of course we could, <laughs> but it is one matter to imagine it is another matter to get evidence, the evidence of this, uh, of this pressure. So when I obtained this documentation and I read the conversation between the U.S. diplomacy and the Italian politicians, because they didn't, the U.S. authorities didn't intervene on judges and prosecutors as they were looking at them as uh, deeply independent, uh, highly independent. So they knew they had no chance to put pressure on judges and prosecutors. So they put pressures, uh, pressure on Italian politicians, both progressive and conservatives. So and in this documentation, you could read their conversation. You could realize how these people were willing to accept this pressure because, of course, they could have told the U.S. authorities, OK, you don't want to extradite them, fine, but we send our extradition request, then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> we cannot put a gun to your head, of course, but we have the duty to send this uh, request. Quite the opposite. They were telling, oh, sure, uh, talk to the Ministry of Justice, talk to this, talk to this, <laughs> to uh, another one. And so you could obtain evidence of how the Italian authorities were basically received this pressure and accepted to go uh, to accept this pressure. And I mean, this, uh, this is unbelievable. You, you have no chance whatsoever in, uh, you know, to, to obtain this kind of evidence. Uh, let me tell you that whenever I received this documentation and I was working on new revelation, I was contacted by the families of people who had their loved ones uh, who died in kind of um, terror attacks in Italy during the 70s. So we had a history of political violence due to the fascists putting bombs in, on the trains, on the stations, and so on. And they were contacting me, and they were, uh, because they are still looking for justice. They still don't have justice. They don't have truth, so they don't have crucial information. No matter 60 years of criminal investigations and so on, still they have no truth. So they were contacting me. Could you please check? the Wikileaks databases, whether there is any information, because they realize that when you deal with this level of state criminality, uh, the, or, the, the ordinary uh, justice uh, cannot get evidence of these state criminalities. These state criminalities is shielded by thick layers of secrecy, and there's no way unless someone from the inside step out with the evidence, with this secret documentation. That's why Wikileaks is crucial. It is, um, it's, in, it's important, goes far beyond what Wikileaks revealed. What is absolutely crucial about the work of Julian Assange and Wikileaks is the fact that the battle for secrecy, when secrecy is used not to protect the citizens, but rather to 
protect state criminality can be won. Before, we could not even imagine that this battle could be won. Before, we assume, all of us, journalists and, and the public, assume that, well, of, of course, we will never know. We will never know because there is state secrecy. But they provide a, a, a way for the whistleblowers, for people who were inside and had the conscience. These people inside uh, the, this intelligence community are not all criminals. Of course, there are criminals. Of course, there are torturers. Of course, there are uh, very bad people. But there are also people who deeply disagree with these brutalities. And if there is a media organization who have a system to protect the whistleblowers and that has the courage to protect them, because it's not just a matter of being able technically, technically, it's also a matter of, being, of having courage. And in fact, after publishing this revelation, Julian Assange has never walked as a free man again. So it has requested a tremendous courage. This is why we never am told, well, uh, it's Chelsea Manning that deserves the credit. Of course, Chelsea Manning is, deserves the credit. She's the source, but it's not enough to, get, to have a, a, an amazing source. You also need a media organization. You also need journalists who have the courage and have the skills to get this information out to the, to the public. Otherwise, you can have the most explosive re revelations, you know, but they don't come out. I, yeah, I mean, the Abu Omar case, for me personally, is incredibly revealing as to how the U.S. operates on NATO territory. I mean, this isn't even in a country far away like Indonesia or, or something that we can't imagine from our perspective being in the West. This is in Italy, uh, 26 CIA officials, along with four other Italian intelligence officials responsible for extraditing an Egyptian citizen in the middle of the day in broad daylight in Milan in 2003. And I mean, this is a case which I studied in a, in a law course, and it was just totally absurd. But what is even more important, as you explain, is how WikiLeaks illustrated, or, or the documents which they published illustrated how the U.S. puts pressure on other governments and how, you know, democracy is actually so weak in so many of our Western countries, such as Italy. Italy is such a weak democracy when you see how, I believe it was Enrico Letta from the uh, Partito Democratico, the Democratic Party, and how he just caved to the request of the U.S. government to put pressure on Italian officials to not issue this request to extradite 26 CIA officials to Italy to face justice, because in this case, it wasn't an instance of the prosecutors not doing their job. They actually convicted these 26 CIA officers, but they just weren't able to extradite them. So I think, I mean, it just brings it home. These aren't just instances of intervention or surveillance in faraway countries that we can't even imagine. This is on US and, and European soil. So for me personally, the, the Abu Omar case is just mind-blowing. Totally. I mean, uh, absolutely. I completely agree. And it, it, it's uh, absolutely crucial, this case, not just because, mm, you know, not just because uh, it, it tells you how, how fragile our constitutional rights, our freedom, our liberties, our human rights are, even 
in a you know modern country in the most um, you know most important Italian cities Milan well advanced even when you have the best judges even when you have the best prosecutors these people can you know can get impunity this is horrific they can get impunity even when you have judges who are independent and prosecutors who are amazing so it it really scares me it really scares me how fragile our democracy is and uh, you know also what is really important about this case is that the wikileaks documents the the cables because uh, you can find information about the abu admar uh, case on the U.S. diplomatic cables, uh, they have they are classified as secret, and uh, you know this secrecy has nothing to do with security. This secrecy is used to protect horrific human rights violation. It's used to grant impunity to state criminals who are responsible for extremely serious state criminality. So, what WikiLeaks has done is not uh, compromising secrecy when secrecy protects citizens, uh, protect their security. They have not revealed the security measures for a nuclear power plant, for an airport, for a train station. They have revealed how secrecy, state secrecy has, be, has been abused to protect state criminality. Another revelation which you detail in your book in um, Secret Power relates to the Vault 7 CIA uh, trove of documents, which was the largest loss of CIA data in history. Um, and the Vault 7 documents show the different tactics that the CIA uses in terms of surveillance, but also how governments work with private security form, uh, firms and basically you know, hire and, and employ all sorts of different um, surveillance programs on journalists and activists around the world. Perhaps you can explain how this relates specifically to the case of uh, Saudi journalist who's unfortunately now murdered, Jamal Khashoggi. Yes, uh, this is also a very important part of the WikiLeaks work from the very beginning, even before uh, immediately after they revealed the U.S. classified documents, they uh, started working on the surveillance industry, initially the private uh, surveillance industry, and they were the very, very first to put the hacking team, the infamous uh, Italian surveillance company, on the radar screen of the public opinion. And as a consequence, many tech experts uh, who, who have um, investigated these surveillance companies focus on them, try to get evidence of these, um, sur these surveillance technologies being used not to, you know, not to investigate terrorism, not to investigate mafia or dangerous criminals, but unfortunately had been sold to horrific regimes, uh, authoritarian regimes who were using these technologies to persecute dissidents, persecute journalists, persecute um, human rights defenders. So it was 
thanks to WikiLeaks and many followers, of course, I'm not saying that it was just WikiLeaks <laughs> who did it, but they did it in such a prominent way, uh, bringing the evidence, bringing the documentation. And this documentation inspired many researchers, researchers from the labs, researchers um, who in these days work with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, to document how these technologies get abused on a regular basis by democratic countries selling it to regimes. So this is, this is absolutely an important work. And after this, in 2017, um, WikiLeaks revealed the secret documents, the, the so-called Vault 7, um, the um, secret cyber weapons, which are weapons made consisting of software, which the CIA and the intelligence agencies used to penetrate computers, to penetrate um, to penetrate uh, uh, mobile phones and so on. And I remember how tense it was. It was very tense to work on it uh, because, you know, when you have documents, secret documents uh, uh, belonging to the CIA, you are, you are uh, very terrified, very concerned of being discovered and being unable to publish them. Then maybe something will happen to me. We were, I was one of the very few and I remember it was very, very tense to publish those documents. And I was wondering, we will be able to publish this documentation before we get discovered by the CIA. Of course we did, <laughs> we published it. And only after we published, the CIA realized that they had lost control of thousands and thousands of documents, which is highly embarrassing for them. And you wonder, how they can protect themselves if they cannot even control their secrets how can they protect the community the you know the the, the citizens if they don't even control their secrets so i i understand that the cia was so furious that after wikileaks uh, published the uh, vault 7 secret documents in in cooperation with some media partners, and I was one of the very, very few media partners, uh, they, the CIA was so upset that the then head of CIA, Mike Pompeo, uh, basically considered some plans to kill him or to kidnap him, which is quite shocking because this is this was not happening in China, this was not happening in Russia, this was not happening in Iran, this was happening here in Europe, in our democracies, and they were just considering, they were planning to kill him just for revealing public information in, in the public, in, in, truthful information in the public interest, which is what a journalist does, basically. Right, they were trying to find ways to potentially kill him while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy or maybe to poison him. He wasn't even in detention then. He was benefiting from asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. And that's Absolutely. technically on you know, the, the territory of another sovereign state because it's the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Um, but maybe we can speak about they the... Doing it. They wanted to do it just because he had revealed, he and Wikileaks had revealed 
truthful information in the public interest. So that's that's they had not uh, they they didn't want to kill him for other reason, just for doing his job as a journalist, which is, I think, the most serious, the most outrageous thing about this story. And the company that was uh, in charge of his surveillance at the time was UC Global. The current head of UC Global, David Morales, is being investigated by Spanish authorities at the moment for um, the different things that they were doing when they were surveilling the embassy. And I believe that you had some very disconcerting experiences when you went to the embassy to visit Julian when he was still there. Maybe you can speak about um, some of the things you experienced when you were visiting him. Yes, it was. Um, I remember that uh, until uh, Correa, Rafael Correa, the Ecuadorian president who had uh, granted asylum to Julian Assange, the atmosphere in the embassy was friendly. We were welcome. We could visit him. We could um, basically work inside the embassy, and we did many, many times. Uh, there was no. Uh, sometimes there were some tension, but. It, it was uh, a friendly atmosphere. Whereas when Le Lenin Moreno became the new Ecuadorian M president, uh, the situation uh, completely changed and uh, we realized we were no longer welcome. We realized that there was always tension and uh, he got isolated for many months in 2018. I remember I tried for months to to access him uh, in um, in March 2018, and of course it was pretty clear that uh, Ecuador under Lenin Moreno didn't want to protect Julian Assange anymore. And I remember the first when we were targeted. Basically, it was 2000 uh, December 2017. And I had just discovered that the UK authorities at the Crown Prosecution Service had destroyed the key documentation on Julian Assange. So I went to the embassy and wanted to discuss many things with Julian Assange, including this destruction of documents, which was completely suspicious, as I said. And I realized as soon as I arrived, I realized this was something deeply wrong because I uh, never before I had been asked uh, to, uh, I had been asked my backpack, for example. I was confiscated my backpack, and I had very important things, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to give them the, the security guards my backpack, but they were quite clear that I was supposed to to give them my backpack. Okay, so I gave them my backpack and uh, I went to the to meet Julian Assange in the meeting room and while I, while I was meeting him I didn't know but someone accessed my devices someone accessed my uh, basically my phones my um, USB sticks uh, my recorders electro, um, digital recorders and they unscrewed my phones, they opened them in two, they extracted the scene, and they took pictures. Fortunately, they, they took pictures, so we got evidence of these activities, otherwise it would have been impossible to discover them. 
So uh, I discovered uh, they were recording our conversation, they were filming us, and um, two years later, in 2019, we discovered this. We discovered this activity, spying activities, targeting all of us, um, in, especially the, the Julian Assange defense team, the lawyers, the family, the current wife of Julian Assange, Stella Assange, she was heavily targeted. They tried to even to uh, to discover whether their child was actually <laughs> their child. They tried. They wanted to access his DNA. They wanted to um, uh, to acquire information on Stella. They wanted to acquire information on all the WikiLeaks journalists, on their lawyers. They spied their lawyers very heavily got access to the legal documentation which tells you how can he hope to have a you know a fair trial when the when the US authorities knows the the, the legal strategy how can he hope to get any fair trial there, there is no way to to have a fair trial when the legal strategy is uh, open it's public and <laughs> the counterpart knows this detail so I remember that we got evidence only because there was um, a police operation in this company, Spanish company, who was, which was the UC Global. And now we have a criminal case in Spain. I was one of the journalists who sued them, trying to get information who did it. Someone did it. We have evidence, we have videos, we have audios, we have pictures. And so someone opened the phones, someone accessed these, uh, the full uh, devices. You know, Talia, these are the kind of things you expect in an authoritarian society. If you go in an authoritarian society, you expect this kind of targeting of journalism, <laughs> which uh, happens almost on a daily basis. But in these in now democratic societies, a massive scandal <laughs> that they have done this. You know, they they did it trying to acquire all sorts of information, legal information on Julian Assange, personally deeply private information on his private life, uh, information on the journalists, information on the lawyers, information on the WikiLeaks journalists. It is very disquieting what happened. And I hope this criminal investigation, which is going on in Spain, will bring some evidence and some important information about who did what. Apparently, according to the protected witnesses, it was done by the UC Global Company uh, on CIA behalf. Apparently, UC Global was working for the CIA. So let's hope the criminal investigation in in, um, in Spain will uh, come will come out with solid information about this case. And I think if I understood correctly, you also speak about how it was due to UC Global's illegal surveillance that the sort of strategy which was being um, designed by Assange's lawyers and um, Ecuadorian officials to give him diplomatic status or a diplomatic passport was was foiled because of this surveillance. So they somehow found out that uh, his lawyers were, were speaking to um, Ecuadorian 
officials to perhaps get him a diplomatic position in a country such as Venezuela or China or whichever other country would agree to it. And no one else knew about this. So it was quite apparent that it was a result of their surveillance and passing on that information to the CIA that they were unfortunately able to stop that. Otherwise, he might have been able to go to another country and be safe there. Absolutely, absolutely. It was only through the spying of targeting the Julian Assange lawyers that they acquired this information, which was, uh, you know, uh, highly secret. It was information which the Julian Assange defense had not discussed, you know, publicly. So there was no way um, unless they spied on the on the lawyers and, and the whole story is um, very disquieting because you realize that even, <clears throat> you know, we we think in our democracies, you can reveal uh, what your government does you know, secretly with your money in, in your name. But this case demonstrates that even in, um, in our democracies, you cannot do it safely. You cannot do it freely. You have to pay a price which is unbearable. Julian Assange has paid the price which is unbearable. He has never known freedom again since 2010. It's unacceptable that the price is so high. It shouldn't be so high, you know? It should. We should be able to reveal state criminality at the highest level and be free and safe. That's why I'm telling that we are at a crossroad. We are at a crossroad. <clears throat> With this case, the United States is ready to put in prison for life a journalist who has revealed war crimes, torture, extrajudicial killing. And if they do it, if they win this case, uh, the consequences will be devastating. It will mean we, we no longer live in a democracy in which you can reveal state criminality at the highest level. And uh, a country in which you cannot is clearly not a democracy. And you've worked with WikiLeaks as a media partner. And I think, you know, after the Afghan war logs and the Iraq war logs were released, the Pentagon and Admiral Mike um, Mark Mullen, rather, said that Assange had blood on his hands and that the, the ways in which WikiLeaks were releasing these documents were, you know, uncoordinated and, and not done in a way to prevent um, harm towards other journalists or to other, you know, military personnel on the ground. What would you say to those critics? Well, I want to say that I was there. They were not. I was there and I was there from the very beginning and uh, that's why newspapers pay you to be there when things happen and to see with your own eyes and to be a witness of what's happening and uh, i was there and uh, i can tell you that uh, we work very um, very conscientiously on these documents we were able to uh, to reveal this important information which is absolutely in the public interest and which keep informing keeps informing the public even in these days 13 years after it was published uh, 10 days ago Simon Hirsch revealed the uh, sabotage uh, uh, alleged 
US sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. The first thing I did was to go to the WikiLeaks cables and trying to understand, to acquire information on the Nord Stream pipelines because <laughs> this information is still valuable. And when the Ukraine war and the gas crisis uh, um, exploded, the first thing to do, I did was to uh, consult the WikiLeaks cable. They are still relevant. Or when the uh, Jamal Khashoggi was killed, the first thing the the Washington Post did was to access the WikiLeaks documents on on hacking team, and they found important information on these documents, even if they were published many years ago. So this documentation still keeps informing the public, and we publish it safely. After 13 years, the U.S. government has has been unable to to provide a single example of a person who was killed, who was uh, injured, who was put in prison as a result of these publications. So they have tried hard <laughs> to find victims, to find people who were seriously damaged by this publication, and after 13 years, they have been unable to pub to bring a single example. So this example, you know, had they found just an example, it would have been, you know, disseminated uh, around the world, but they haven't. So it tells you a lot about how seriously we work on these documents, how we protected the, the names of the people mentioned in this in this documentation and how this campaign of blood in, on their hands has been just a demonization campaign to one of the many, unfortunately, to, you know, to deprive of any empathy, public empathy, Julian Assange, Wikileaks. And it, I have seen so many demonization campaigns. This was, was one of the very first. They have blood on their hands, and of course, there is no blood. Then another demon, demonization was well, he's a rapist. And again, uh, he was never charged, and the investigation was closed with no charges whatsoever. Then there was the demonization campaign that Julian Assange was in bed with Russia. Again, no evidence whatsoever. Then the demonization that he was in bed with Trump. And again, we can see that the, <laughs> it was the Trump administration that charged Julian Assange. So all these demonization campaigns are seriously impact um, the perception of the public and have denied him uh, uh, solidarity and empathy for the last decade. Now, people have started looking at what's going on because now they cannot deny that it has always been about US. It has always been about revealing war crimes, revealing torture. So now they can no longer, people can no longer deny that this case is about revealing dirty secrets, revealing state criminality. So now we see a lot of, uh, you know, public support, but it took so long, you know, it took over a decade. That's, and in the meantime, his health has been destroyed, his life has been destroyed. You mentioned investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, and it's quite interesting that um, it was because of the WikiLeaks documents that they were able to corroborate a lot of the 2004 
Abu Ghraib revelations. So these trove of um, documents have been so essential to corroborate past cases and, and past revelations and the ways in which they've served the, the public good, I, in my view, is uh, something that you can't really question. But my last question to you would be something that you mentioned in your book, which I found <laughs> very powerful, but also quite depressing. And you say that something that was, you know, something even worse than the crimes of the CIA is actually the apathy of the public. And you were speaking about the Italian public, because despite all of these revelations, um, no political movement has mobilized around uh, the WikiLeaks um, publications, nor has any uh, politician tried to do anything in, in terms of um, mobilizing the Italian public. So I was just wondering, why do you think that is? Or do you think that it's a result of the information landscape or the media landscape in Western countries? Or do people not care? Or, or what, why do you think that would be? Thank you for this question, because it is really important. Because at the very beginning, in 2010, when uh, I started revealing these documents about the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the cables, I was really, you know, shocked. I was stunned by the public apathy. Uh, we were revealing <laughs> unbelievable things, and nothing happened. There was not even a parliamentary inquiry. There was not even, you know, a kind of uh, uh, basically grassroots organization going uh, to a prosecutor's and try to file a criminal complaint. There was absolutely nothing. And I was upset because, uh, you know, if we had this kind of, uh, kind of feedback, this kind of follow-up, it would have been different. It would have been it would have been tremendously important. So at the beginning, I was really, really upset. And one of the reasons, I think, is the inability of the Italian media to team up and to try to put pressure on Italian authorities when important things have, are at stake. I mean, they, there are so petty dynamics. Uh, since your competitor revealed these things, you don't want to uh, provide coverage or do, you don't want to provide support uh, because you don't want to support a scoop of one of your competitors. So I think these petty dynamics didn't help. But in addition to this, I realized that it was not just a, a matter of this. It was not just a matter that our politicians are so compromised, are so in bed with the U.S. authorities. Uh, it is also um, um, a way, it is also a problem of involving the public. I can see the difference uh, uh, now, 13 years later, uh, after I published this book, and I received three, four questions, uh, three, four requests per week to <laughs> to discuss the book, to discuss the revelation. And these are grassroots organizations. This is our school, universities, small communities. They want to discuss them. They want to understand what they can do. So I think uh, on the one hand, it is true that uh, uh, there are these petty, they were these petty dynamics. It is true that 
um, the US, the Italian politicians are so um, compromised and so on. But on the other hand, it is also a matter of finding a way to engage the public. And I'm very happy that this this book has unleashed uh, a deep invo a deep involved the public because they can connect the dots. They can see what happens from what happened from the 9/11 uh, for the in the last 13 years, 14 years, and they connect the dots because I put together all these things and I go deep into these revelations. I explain, and you see that when you connect the dots, the public reacts. The public want to be involved. The public want to uh, want to ask you. What can I do? I'm a, I'm an humble teacher. Uh, what, what I can do, or I'm an humble student. How I can do something for? Because I, of course I don't want to be part of this. I want to uh, to help you to make uh, my country accountable for its uh, um, human rights violations, for his role in torture, his war involvement in wars. So I see that now there is a big involvement, and this involvement is the result of engaging the public. So I'm a bit optimistic after all this. I keep receiving three, four, sometimes five requests per week, and sometimes I can I cannot just I cannot do it. But each oh, oh, every time I can do, I really love to engage with them. It gives me hope. I've, there's so much apathy, public apathy, and uh, after so much silent and, you know, detachment, it gives me hope. So I take every opportunity to engage and to talk to the public and never ask for a single euro. I think this is my duty towards the community, you know. Yeah, to serve the public good and to ensure that people are aware of what is going on behind the scenes and the sort of pernicious uh, things that governments get up to, including in, in wars such as in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Yeah, and they don't feel hopeless because this is precisely what the power wants. The power wants that uh, citizens feel hopeless, feel, you know, unable to change the the. the the course of uh, our uh, of our public debate, where I think the public has has power, and they don't even realize. So I really, I'm really happy to help them to connect the dots and to realize that they can do something. They can react. They can activate and protest and uh, try to file a criminal complaint and. Maybe you will not nail the CIA agents because we have seen how how the dynamics uh, works behind the scene. Maybe you cannot achieve uh, such important result, but certainly uh, you can achieve something. You you have the power as a citizen to do something, and you should do because if we look at the you know if we look at the world, the world has changed deeply in the last century the world has changed deeply and the reason why it has changed is not because uh, of some magic uh, reason it's because people have fought hard to change it and with uh, a lot of work a lot of sacrifice 
a lot of passion, civic passion, and we still have to work hard. And I hope with this work, I can contribute to to create a world in which you can reveal war crimes, you can reveal torture, and you can be free, you can be safe. I, I hope so. Well, your book is really fascinating, and I highly recommend that everyone reads it, Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. Stefania Maurizi, thank you so much for joining us. This was really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for this excellent interview. And thank you for watching us at theanalysis.news. You can go to our website if you'd like to donate at theanalysis.news. Hit the red button at the top of the screen and also get on our mailing list. That way you'd be notified of all future episodes. Thank you so much.